Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinle, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like John, Robin, Janet, Ben, Walker, and Garrett, and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Callum Pritchard. Callum graduated from the University of Plymouth, England in 2020 with a Bachelor's of Science in Marine Biology and Oceanography. He then enrolled in a Master's of Research in Marine Biology at the University of Plymouth, where he investigated the reproductive ecology of gray mullet populations on the Dorset coast of England and studied patterns in morphology that could be used to differentiate between gray mullet species. While conducting his master's degree, Callum also worked as an independent consultant marine biologist for a local seaweed farming company. Currently, Callum is in his first year of his PhD in applied marine and fisheries ecology at the University of Aberdeen. His research there investigates the ecology of Scottish wrasse populations for the purpose of informing sustainable management of this fisheries. Welcome to the podcast. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to hear about more about your work, and I'm really excited to hear about the UK version of grad school because I feel like it's probably pretty different than what I've experienced so far in the US. From what I've heard, there's a lot of differences, mainly in time. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was looking through your bio and I was like, this is a lot faster than I would have ever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But first, uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. What first got you interested in fisheries and science? Yeah, sure. So apparently my very first word was fish. <laughs> uh, so I must have been quite young, but I used to stand at a fish tank at my family friend's house. I had my hands up on my glass, just going fish, fish, like that. <laughs> so I, I fact-checked that with my parents as well, because I didn't believe them. It turns out it's true. <laughs> so yeah, it was from a very young age. And like for me, going to the beach was my favourite, but mainly mm-hmm. for like rock pooling. Yeah. And I grew up in Southampton, so there wasn't like too many like rock pooling beaches to go to. But I used to try and make it work. Like I'd be climbing around the groins on sandy beaches, just trying to find anything that's trapped there. Yeah. And like once I got this like massive spider crab, like ran over to my mum and dad with it, showed it off, and then got told to put it back because it was dangerous. Great. <laughs> um, but then yeah, I I don't know. I just I fell in love with it at an early age, and then I guess. I never lost interest, but I never thought I could pursue it as much as a career. I, mm-hmm. I've heard like there were people out there called marine biologists, but it was quite this like abstract concept. I had no idea what they did. It was right. just like a fish person. And um, it wasn't until maybe I was 18 that I actually realized, okay, there is a path to become a marine biologist. And I thought I'd give it my best shot. And, you know, it's worked out so far, definitely. I'm doing a PhD, so I'm very, very happy with it. Yeah, that's awesome. When did you first get interested in research? I know you did an undergraduate thesis, so was it sometime in your bachelor's degree? Yeah, definitely. It would probably be around like the second or third year of my degree. I think one of the hardest things that I found in my bachelor's was trying to think like a scientist and ask questions. Mm -hmm. And I almost got jealous of those around me who were able to do it first. Like, you know, people put up their hand and ask questions. I was like, oh, I wish I thought of that. It took me absolutely ages. And it was only around the third year of my degree that I started I don't know thinking for myself and thinking okay actually I've got some novel ideas that maybe I could test here Mm -hmm. but yeah it's it's quite an interesting skill it took me a while to build it but I think once once I got my foot in the door I wanted to run away with it and now I get all sorts of ideas in fact too many sometimes so (laughs) no kidding (laughs) 
So what did you do for your undergraduate thesis? Yeah, so I had this quite opportunistic thesis. My supervisor, Dr. Claire Embling, uh, she was part of a research group that got like this multi-million pound grant to go to Chagos. And I can't remember exactly what they were looking at, but it was to do with um, biota over seamounts. And as part of that grant, they were able to secure some really cool kit. And that included this Simrad ES70 echo sounder. So mm-hmm. what they wanted to do was test it out in Plymouth Sound, get to know the products, get to know the equipment before they took it over to Chagos. So there was about a week where I was able to access this really cool equipment, you know, try and look for fish throughout Plymouth uh, while they were testing it. Mm-hmm. So we took it over to Eddystone Lighthouse, which is this huge reef about nine miles south of Plymouth. And we were doing transects from there to another reef, hands deep. And we're just looking for uh, fish schools in like in relation to the tidal state. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was going to make up my thesis. And then, you know, a couple of days in and we got hit by the worst weather. So all of that sampling time was just gone. We couldn't get out on the boat. Yeah. I changed it to then like later in September, we went out sampling, but we had to do it within the estuary. Uh, so we were going mm-hmm. up and down the estuary and we were thinking, okay, let's have a look at, you know, fish schools in relation to local topography. So you've got your depth, depth variability, but you've also got your physical parameters. So like salinity and temperature. Mm-hmm. So we thought, okay, we've got a project in that definitely. So it was more of an opportunity to use this yeah. really interesting bit of kit that otherwise I would not have got an opportunity to touch. So is that like a sonar type machine? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell different species from that or is it just kind of like the abundance? In my case, I definitely couldn't, but there is a lot of research that has, I think they've identified like different fish schools have different target strength. Okay. And it depends on a lot of variables and this isn't really my field, so I don't know too much. (laughs) But like, if you can get like the depth right, I think there's software that can say, you know, this could be a herring as compared to like, this could be something else. But in, in my research, it was really just looking for fish school occurrence and abundance. Mm-hmm. Cool. What all did you find with that? Was there certain topographies that were more associated with fish schools or no? Yeah, we found, um, I, I'd say my findings are very limited because, yeah. again, we had such a short sampling period. Mm-hmm. But fish schools were a lot more common over flatter terrain. So, you know, like these nice little like mud flats, just they seem to have tons of fish schools in them as compared mm-hmm. to in the Tamar Estuary. It's quite a unique estuary. It's got this really deep channel. It goes, um, I think, 30 plus, even down to 40 meters. Okay. So like you don't get any fish schools through there at all. And then suddenly you get into these lovely mud flats and they're everywhere. And as you right. go a little bit further up under the bridge, there seems to be this little like dip that they all hang out in. As yeah. well. <laughs> Very cool. So did you start your master's? Was that at the same university with that same advisor or was it a different program? So, yeah, it was um, it's with Plymouth, but also the Marine Biological Association. So same university to award it, but the staff who are more involved in the MRES are from the MBA. Okay. And no, I changed supervisor. Now this was because during that time that Claire went to Chagos with the equipment, mm-hmm. I had a, a Dr. Benjamin Ciotti or Ciotti. I always forget how to pronounce it. And <laughs> <laughs> um, he kind of filled in for me for a couple of months and I got on really well with him. And when I approached my master's, I was thinking like, okay, I'd really like to do something with a little bit more hands-on experience with fish. Mm-hmm. And I knew Ben was the guy to go for, for that. And I had a little bit of a rapport with him. So um, he had pitched this grey mullet project. And as soon as he pitched it, it was looking at the reproductive ecology of grey mullet. As soon as he pitched it, I thought, okay, I definitely want to do that. Mm-hmm. So 
I, I did worry like I was being doing a bit of a cop out, like I'd been pitched this lovely research idea and I could just nab it and not think for myself. <laughs> but like I get on very well with Ben and I think it was an excellent choice because it also lined me up very well for the PhD that I ended up in. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And you were also working as that marine biologist consultant for the seaweed farm. Was it difficult to try to balance both of those things or did it work out pretty well to do both those jobs? It was, it was a weird one. It's, not like a nine to five it wasn't a normal job that I had mm-hmm. this consultancy one it was at the start of the pandemic the very first lockdown like I was coming out of my undergraduate and I was thinking okay I've got some time to kill I need to get a job and I saw this job advertised as a I think it was a hatchery technician to work in this seaweed hatchery mm-hmm. and I was already like two months past the deadline but I put a prospective application through and the CEO called me up I think like a month later and he just said look okay, I've got a couple of little projects going on that I'm thinking about and I might have some jobs available in the future. So bear with me for a few months and you never know, there might be something in there. (laughs) And so in this phone call, he had spoke to me about like all these projects he was interested in. And I just offered, I said like, oh, actually that sounds really interesting. Do you want me to do a little bit of research on that? And I can forward it to you like a, Mm -hmm. like a literature review. And the next thing you know is we've got this kind of arranged, I'm his new consultant. So he (laughs) he brought me in to look at all sorts of like different projects and it could be something that he was definitely going into or it could be Mm -hmm. just a wild idea he had but he would hand me over like this you know like a almost like a piece of homework that I had to do and suddenly (laughs) I'm getting paid for it. So it was that was fantastic and I had some I had, I think one of the things that I wrote for him, it was about seaweed farming in Micronesia. It mm-hmm. ended up going to some quite important people that I had no idea who they were. It was, it was an interesting job for sure. <laughs> Very cool. So I guess going back to your master's work, do you just in your programs for both your master's and your PhD, do you just focus on your research or do you take classes as well? Okay, so that depends. Um, With my master's, it was a research-based one. Mm -hmm. I did have three modules within that. So we did three modules from, I think, what was it, October to January. And then from January to September, it was all of our own research. Mm -hmm. And again, this is quite a unique master's that I was on because it's only a year. Whereas, you know, a lot of the taught masters will be on two years and you're doing right. multiple like, exams. So again, I think I got off quite easy. <laughs> definitely. Because people did my masters with lots of exams and I didn't have to do a single exam. <laughs> Is that the same for your PhD or do you have more exams and classes for that? I don't know if it varies between universities with PhDs over here. Mine, it definitely feels like it's just research-based. Like mm-hmm. since I started, it's kind of get you know your supervisory team and you've got your projects and it's like okay we'll start reading around the literature start designing your question mm-hmm. and uh the first like piece that I've really got to do is in nine months and it's my nine month review and that's where I kind of you know establish what we know in the literature so far right. and then kind of what my plans are uh, for the rest of my PhD now alongside my PhD there are like seminars to attend mm-hmm. and we have like small modules like you know your basic research ethics and you know like how to you know design in research like in a professional setting and lots of health and safety and admin etc but I don't have any like taught modules that I'm enrolled on I'm not expected to complete any exams or anything like that which I believe is quite different from the US yes (laughs) (laughs) so do you you all not have like comprehensive exams or things like that not for me I I think 
in some like uh, straight biology programs they do where you've got to have you've got to show that you you know you've got a good understanding of the general area yeah but not for me mine's definitely just research-based huh very cool do you I guess this is my biased opinion because I've only gotten to school in the U.S. I've enjoyed having classes to some respect because when it comes to statistics or things like that, it's kind of nice to learn it in a structured format. Do you think that would be beneficial or is it, do you like prefer learning that stuff on your own? I'd definitely, I'd actually really love to have some modules alongside, (laughs) just a little bit of structure. Yeah. Definitely. Because it's been quite hard to sink into. You start Mm -hmm. a PhD and it's like you're almost in charge of yourself at time. Well, for most of the time. Yeah. I mean, I see my supervisory team like once a month and that's where they realign my tracks. Like, are you going the right direction or have you disappeared somewhere? Mm -hmm. And it does mean, you know, for a month you're kind of guiding yourself. And it would be nice if you had a couple of modules alongside just to keep your knowledge fresh in a new area or build up some something that's unrelated to your topic right yeah I've thought about it because it always sounds so nice that it's almost like a fast track area Mm. or like universities outside of the U.S. but at the same time I'm like well it's kind of nice to be able to actually have a class in like these specific areas too so yeah pros and cons (laughs) yeah definitely um we kind of scooched over it but what did you work on for your master's and what did you find for that project with the gray mullet yeah, so um, we have three species of grey mullet in the UK, and they've like they're not an important fishery yet, but like catch has increased over the last ten or so years. Mm-hmm. So what we had was these samples of grey mullet provided by the Southern Inshore Fisheries Conservation Authority. So we had, I believe, five hundred plus grey mullet. Yeah, and we were looking to because we want to establish, you know, minimum landing sizes. We wanted to get their length at fifty percent maturity. Mm-hmm. So we were looking at macroscopic inspection of the fish's gonads and then using, you know, basic staging to identify which ones were mature and which ones were immature. Mm-hmm. And then you just fit, you know, a logistic curve to find out that L50. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, lots of just basic reproductive ecology, which, you know, providers our L50, the spawning season. But we also started to investigate differences in the morphology between the species because, mm-hmm. I'm sh- do you have gray mullet in the US? I'm sure there's plenty. If we do, it's not around where I work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But they basically they all seem to look the same. There's very like few features that can be used to identify between them. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, the three we've got over here, we've got a thin lip, a thick lip, and one with a golden spot. But then pretty much half of them have a golden spot anyway. And their lips are, you know, they're indistinguishable most of the time. So we were looking at different ways to identify between these species. And then we used like some quite complex statistics for me at least it was principal component analyses mm-hmm. and random forest classification yeah. to look at uh, you know trends in morphology between species and then try and use that to test well use the random forest classification to test how reliable they are at determining the species mm-hmm. i've kind of glossed over the details in that because i've forgotten them there but i'll leave it with that <laughs> So to essentially ground truth, those morphologies were using genetics or anything like that? or Yes. So that's in question at the moment. We've got the genetic samples. Um, we had a lot of problem with actually trying to, we managed to extract the DNA, uh, but trying to amplify the DNA. We were just running out of time for one because we had been impacted by the COVID lockdowns. Yep. But also I think most of the constituents that we had available in the lab might have been quite old. Mm. And we just didn't have that time to go through systematically and check which ones were working and which ones weren't. Mm-hmm. Or we, we also didn't have the budget just to buy the new ones. Yeah. So 
at the moment, those DNA samples are still in the lab and we're hoping, I'm still in touch with my supervisor, we're hoping that another student's going to come through awesome. within the next year and get those ground truthed yeah. uh, to species level. And then we'll have a publication out of that, hopefully. Oh, that's awesome. Mm. Are gray mullet a commercially valuable species? Or are they, why are they important? Not massively. I think they're a bit more important in the Mediterranean. Okay. But because um, because we've got the warming seas over in the southwest, and we've got these, like, there's, I think there's eight species or eight plus species in the Mediterranean, and we only have three up here. We're suspected mm. to get more, you know, as it, uh, okay. the temperatures rise, mm-hmm. and they're also. Um, expected to proliferate further uh, north in the UK. Mm-hmm. So um, we've seen an increase in catch data and price has gone up for grey mullet. So there is a fishery. It's not mm-hmm. that valuable yet, but it's yeah. just about getting that data as soon as possible to you know protect what you've got yeah. and ensure you can use it sustainably as a resource. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Did that, did your master's work kind of roll into you finding your PhD or did you take some time off between those? Yeah, I I was actively searching for a PhD as soon as I found a master's. Yeah. And it was, I think they drum it into you quite quickly when you're on a master's, like, you know, oh, so many of you might go on to do a PhD. And if you want to do a PhD, this is what to expect. And I, I think I had got really caught up in it. Like I was mm-hmm. just enjoying the wave that I was riding. And I was thinking, okay, yeah, PhD, that's the next step, even though I've barely begun my master's. Right. In the end, I had like, I think 12 rejections from PhDs, which was quite disheartening. I had yeah. three interviews, but I got this PhD like early on in 2021. And I was just, I was absolutely thrilled because it couldn't have been a better PhD. It was so well linked to what I had already had under my belt, but also my interests. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess just perseverance, especially when there's there's so much competition in this field for sure. So it's going to take several attempts to try and get anything. Yeah. So do you want to talk about what you're working on for your PhD? Yeah, absolutely. So I've actually got some notes in case I wander off because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's just so much about RAS that I could talk about. And it's quite, I'm still trying to narrow down what I'm actually going to focus on. Mm-hmm. So basically the RAS fishery began in the 1990s uh, when RAS were realised as these natural predators of sea lice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sea lice are a major welfare threat on salmon farms. Um, so they're exoparasites on the salmon. And when you've got these densely aggregated salmon, they'll uh, jump from each other really rapidly and spread into an infestation if they're mm-hmm. left untreated. So RAS were experimentally deployed as a form of biocontrol against uh, sea lice. And it proved highly successful. So there is an established fishery for rats since then. Um, but it was still quite a novel method for controlling sea lice. Uh, so it didn't really pick up until about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. So there were kind of like some teething problems at the start of this fishery. Because there's other options for controlling uh, sea lice in situ. So you've got your vaccines, uh, you've got thermal shock, and then, you know, uh, what is it chemical bathing etc so these are all like viable options within the 1990s that could have been used instead of RAS because it was farmers were still trying to figure out actually how do we keep RAS alongside salmon right. and ensure that number one they're effective but also ensure their survival mm-hmm. but yeah no it, in the last decade or so it seems that a lot of research has gone towards ensuring that this is a possible me- mechanism of biocontrol and it seems to be working for sure um The main theme of the RAS fishery is that there's just so little data available. Um, I think the UK government holds catch data from 2009 onwards. 
Mm. The Scottish government, I believe, only holds data from 2017 onwards, but I'm not 100% sure of that. But there's up to two decades of, you know, a grass fishery that's completely unaccounted for. We don't know what was caught. We don't know the composition of the species. They're mainly kind of just jumbled under the term ras. But we have eight, eight species of ras in the UK. So it could, we don't know which ones, you know, were the most important during that time. Right. What we do know now is that the industry is moving towards ballon ras. So along with the lack of data, uh, there was also a lack of harvest control measures. Mm-hmm. So these were brought in, I think, in 2017. So this included like minimum landing size, maximum landing size, uh, well, uh, seasonal closures, but also because it's a live fishery, they're caught in pots. And one of the restrictions is that you have to you know, retrieve the pot at a min- maximum speed to ensure its survival. Mm-hmm. So you don't get a rupture of the gas bladder. But all of these restrictions were voluntary until about 2020. So we have this fishery that's been around almost three decades right. and it's been actually regulated for maybe two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so at the moment it's, um, it's a multi-species fishery, but we're moving towards this uh, monospecies fishery of just the balanrass. Uh, so this is like the industry's favourite cleaner fish, is, uh, it's proved the best. It's the largest uh, wrasse on our coast, grows up to 70 centimetres, lives up to 29 years old. And they're really common and really hardy as well. Mm -hmm. So the industry loves them. So they've got high survivability from, you know, the point that they're caught to the point they're deployed in salmon farms. Mm -hmm. So they've got this really unique life history where they're protogenous hermaphrodites, uh, meaning that all individuals are born as female and then Mm -hmm. uh, perform sex change to males at a later point in their life. Uh, So these fish, well, these types of fish characteristically have these high female skewed sex ratios. Mm-hmm. So in this case, males may make up as little as 10% of the population. So the immediate risk here is that, you know, if you, if you do your typical fishing of the larger fish, you may remove that entire male population and right. you're left with a non-reproductive stock. So say you did that once, you remove all of those males, eventually some of those females will transition to males. And in the long run, it's not actually going to do too much damage. But if you were to continuously repeat that process of removing all the larger fish mm-hmm. you're never going to have a reproductive stock right so that's one of the greatest dangers with this species and um there's no external morphology to mark the difference between males and females either mm-hmm. so at the moment we rely essentially on size as an indicator of you know if a fish is male or female mm-hmm. so the lucky thing with this industry is because because ras are reef species it's not like we control them we have to fish them with ras traps or creels or you know baited pots mm-hmm. and it's quite easy to be selective with baited pots because the largest fish that you can get will be as large as the aperture size so um you know through control of the aperture size as well as the mesh size we're able to select for a mid-range point of fish Mm-hmm. So we're hopefully we'll leave those, you know, immature young females and leave those mature older males and we'll just be taking that midsection. But we have absolutely no data to say, you know, how selective these traps are at the moment. What right. we do have is a small amount of data from fishers where they report per pot, you know, uh, how many were oversized fish that were caught, how many were undersized fish and how many were in that target range of I guess 12 to 28 centimeters Mm -hmm. so those are the ones you can land so this is where I've got quite an exciting piece of research in my opinion which is I want to use GoPros and lasers (laughs) to identify how large the fish are that 
interact with the fishing gear mm-hmm. because from catch alone all we can see is you know what species did we retain well what length classes did we retain right. we've got no information about the length classes we didn't retain so you know we might have had really high interaction but also really high amount of escapees mm-hmm. or we may not be interacting with the larger organisms at all so I think this will be a really useful piece of research in the sense we can start to understand how large is population size that we're actually interacting with through this these fishing practices mm-hmm. then hopefully once we've got some selectivity data for uh, you know length frequency we can extrapolate that to our catch data and say you know well this this is the potential size of a population that we're currently interacting with and right. then assess you know is that representative of the population that we're trying to Uh, target as a target Mm -hmm. species i have a lot of questions (laughs) (laughs) okay so the first one is is catching them in the wild the only way that they can source these fallon wrasse no so there have been quite a few efforts to produce them in aquaculture now Mm -hmm. and there are a couple of companies who have managed it but the problem is they just can't meet the demand okay i think there will definitely be a movement towards it they just need to upscale the production because um they're also cheaper uh wild Wild Ballon Rask can get up to £17, which is about $23 mm-hmm. uh, per fish. And this could be a tiny 200-gram fish. Right. Whereas a farmed Ballon Rask will be, I think, a £10. Pound. Okay. So, yeah. It took me a second to realize you weren't talking about weight there, but that, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on track now. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking about using the GoPros and lasers. Is that to get at the sizes with the videos? Yes. Okay. Sorry, I completely brushed over that bit. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say GoPros and lasers. Yeah, the, the purpose of that is I'm actually, I'm thinking what I want to do is build a prototype to assess two different ways is obviously we need to assess, well, we need to get an estimate for the lengths of the fish that interact with the fishing gear that aren't retained. Yep. So there's three options. You could use stereo cameras, but realistically that's way too expensive for a PhD. Mm-hmm. We could use lasers, which are a known distance apart. Now, the good thing with this is that, you know, if you've got both dots on the laser, you know, reach for fish, then we can get its length size really easily. If the lasers miss for fish, then we've got something completely unaccounted for. So that's one issue with that method. The mm-hmm. other the other possibility is that I just have a mounted scale at the entrance. Yeah. And you know, if that's a known distance, just image analysis. The only thing that I need to think about with that is perspective, because you know, if the fish we could prob we could probably measure that. I'm not sure. I'm still trying to figure it out yeah. actually. It's I'd have to I'd have to do a trial with uh, basically a target of different perspectives to see how much the error changes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's definitely something in there. I just need to perfect it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So are you getting populate? Are you able to get population estimates from this fishery data then? Or is there like a, uh, so there's like the de- fishery dependent population estimates, fishery independent. Is there any kind of that work going on? That's another part which I'm still trying to figure out. I'm desperate to try and get a population estimate. We mm-hmm. um we don't have any population estimate at all for Ballon Ras, And it's... Because we categorize fish stocks on like the amount of data that's available, mm-hmm. Balamras are this data delimited stock, uh, category five, and we want to move it to a category four stock. Right. And that needs a population estimate for us to, you know, use category four assessment methods, which are a little bit more useful. So yes, I'm still trying to figure out a way that we can get a population estimate from this. We could definitely get an idea 
of you know how much the fished population is there mm-hmm. but not the unfished right work in progress yeah yeah it's really interesting are they a pretty mobile species or do they kind of hang out around their one reef one reef yeah i think the largest estimate is about 100 meters squared so okay. they don't travel far but then there's been this new study that there was this anecdotal evidence that rats disappear over winter um that's like a fisherman's tale mm-hmm. and then in April this year, there was a study that actually demonstrated it. They tagged some rats and they go down to like 70 plus meters depth for the winter. <laughs> and it's to be in warmer temperatures when you're in these high latitude. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is kind of, it looks like it could be a mix, but this is something, again, we don't know for Scottish populations. They're probably quite sedentary between, you know, summer to early winter. And then winter through spring, they kind of disappear somewhere. So um there's definitely a change there that we've not we've not assessed and that would be a really interesting thing to look at next yeah that's cool so for your field work are you mostly doing that in the summer then i'm hoping i'll be able to do it year round okay there will be some issues in just trying to do that legally we have to make sure that we you know approach that the right way mm-hmm. if i can sample fish throughout the entire year it means that i can also investigate things like spawning season to like quite a high degree of accuracy Mm. Uh, so you could hopefully identify it by week instead of month right so that's another thing i'd be really interested in doing but the problem is if these rafts are disappearing you know over the winter it's trying to access those as a resource as well so Mm. i probably am going to be limited where most of my research will take place between the late spring through to summer and autumn Mm -hmm. and then winter it really depends on if we can find them yeah (laughs) How many field seasons are you hoping to connect? I'd say two at least, hopefully. Yeah. It depends. I've definitely, I've got to chat with my supervisors because it would mean two two seasons where I just disappear to the West Coast to Scotland and <laughs> do my own thing. And then I'd have to try and write up potentially two PhD chapters in one year, which <laughs> a lot. could be a bit harder. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see, see what my, um, my supervision says. <laughs> yeah. So how long is, is the goal for your PhD to last? I'm funded for three and a half years. Okay. So yeah, the aim is to be finished by then. Cool. Oh, what a life, three and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's not end of it's not the end of days if I don't get it done by three yeah. and a half years. It just yeah. means the funding is gone and you've right. got to write a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there anything else you really wanted to talk about with your research that I just wouldn't have thought to ask about? No, I don't think so, actually. I'm quite happy with that. Good. I always like to ask this, especially of grad students, because I know we spend a lot of time just focused on our research and like in the world of science and conservation. So what hobbies and interests do you have outside of fisheries and science? Yeah, okay. I play a bit of guitar. I have since I was 15. I'm not really very good. It's it's more of I'll sit close to my guitar. I'll play it for a bit and then I'll go back to doing some work and then I'll just repeat. Yeah. Um, but then I also I've done quite a few. I normally take up a hobby for a small amount of time and then I forget about it. Like I yeah. really got into basketball for a bit. And then when when I was 17, I used to love snowboarding. I, I just got into snowboarding for like three months. It was all I did literally mm-hmm. every day. <laughs> but I think that's that's one I'm actually excited to try up here in Scotland. Because mm-hmm. now that we've got the winter, I definitely want to take myself over to I think it's Glenshee where I can go snowboarding. Awesome. Try that. What is the climate like over in Scotland? I have, I just have no idea. I just imagine it being like rainy and cold. I wouldn't have thought there was snow there. 
it's yeah it's cold it's it's a lot like England to me but colder <laughs> we've not seen too much snow yet in Aberdeen Mm-hmm. we are quite by the sea so that might be why but I think yeah. we get maybe 17 snow days a year okay I think I read that somewhere <laughs> yeah I was just curious I'm I've really spent most of my time in western United States mainly in Montana so we have like really mm. cold snowy winters and I haven't really considered how it might be in Scotland or England during this time of year I think it gets a lot colder on the west coast we're, yeah. we're not too bad in Aberdeen okay So this brings us to the final part of our interview, which is our final five questions that we ask each guest that comes on the show. And the first one is, what is your favorite fish? Yeah, so actually, when I I knew this question was going to come up, I was like, okay, what do I answer? I was so happy that I decided gray mullet. I thought I'd be, I'm in an iron for ages, but no, definitely gray mullet. Number one <laughs> by familiarity. Like I've, mm-hmm. you know, I've been around so many dead gray mullet, God bless their souls. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of got used to them. They're this lovely, like classic torpedo shaped fish, making grow to be massive as well. Mm-hmm. But I've, you know, I've worked with them, but some of my favorite like snorkeling experiences around the Southwest is I'll be looking at something like a, a little wrasse in, in some seaweed. You turn around and there's, you know, four or five gray mullet and they're massive. They kind of just go past you and they're off straight like that. They're brilliant swimmers. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm, all, I'm always happy to see them. So much so I got one tattooed on my Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> my plan is I'm going to be tattooed up like one of those fish posters, like a fish ID poster by there the time go. I'm 70. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good goal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? I have a couple. I think one of my favorites in, in terms of ego, for sure, was uh, during my master's, I volunteered to go out on a fish survey with the MBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was like great fun. In, in a day itself like we were just you know trawling and seeing what fish we had identifying them weighing them uh, taking the total length and then returning them um, but we also took a couple of the invertebrates as well mm-hmm. and there was one worm that came up and no one could ID it and I was like oh that's Stenapsis scutata this invasive worm and it was it was almost like this one moment in my career to date that I felt like a little genius and everyone was like oh wow okay that's well done you. you you knew this and it was just I couldn't believe that number one I remembered what it was or you know two I got it right <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was a really nice one for my ego for sure but then also at the start of my PhD like literally my fifth day I was able to uh, take part in a practical for master's students in Aberdeen mm-hmm. so they had this like a massive lab absolutely full of fish that had been taken from a survey and it had lots of deep sea fish as well and it was quite nerve-wracking for me like in a sense I'd literally just gone from being a master's student to helping out in a master's practical Mm -hmm. but I was told like my aims and objectives are just to get people excited about fish and I ended up doing like four hours of just talking to people getting them to excited about all these amazing fish half of which I'd never seen before Mm -hmm. it was just a fantastic time and it's definitely really interesting when you get to talk to students who don't necessarily know like stuff that you know because Mm -hmm. I don't feel like an expert I feel like a student but you know these people have come from a different background and it was really nice to kind of converse with them and share some knowledge yeah definitely all right what is your dream job and location 
I have no idea at all. <laughs> I think, have you seen Jeremy Wade, River Monsters? Because Yes. <laughs> yeah, whatever he does, that, I mean, that sounds brilliant. But, um, I don't know. I, I'm really enjoying this whole academic lifestyle of, you know, being a researcher. Mm-hmm. I could definitely see me doing this for quite a while. But I don't necessarily have a dream job. I'm more like, I like to assess what's available when I'm in a position to take something mm-hmm. and then just give it a go. Like, yeah. I definitely love to do some more like practical work. I, re- I think I'd like to spend a lot more time on boats. Yeah. Like, I've not had too much experience. I've not been on like a cruise or anything. So I'd love to give that a go. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we'll see what's available. I'll, I'll always find something to be happy with. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great way to approach it anyways. <laughs> All right. If money was not an issue, what is one project you'd like to work on? Definitely to try and get a biomass estimate for RAS. Mm-hmm. That, I think that's just, it will be so useful because it opens up a whole realm of other research opportunities. And you can, you can also then start to use not only data limited methods, but, you know, a bit more data rich methods to start to assess the stock mm-hmm. so I feel like it might not be the most exciting no actually is the most exciting definitely tagging <laughs> fish <laughs> yeah I think that definitely just trying to get a population estimate for balance mass that yeah. is that's the next step maybe I'll try and get a postdoc or something onto that try and secure funding for that yeah very cool <laughs> all right our last question is if there's one pointer principle you could have programmed into everyone's head what would it be yeah, so I'm not sure if this is exactly a principle, but it's something that stuck out with me from my undergraduate. So Dr. Phil Hosgood, an oceanographer from Plymouth, he was setting a piece of coursework and he said, do the basics and do them well. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I kind of come back to because I tend to get quite overexcited when I get a, like a research idea mm-hmm. and I'll start to run away with it. And I'll approach my supervisors and, and I, I don't like actually convey it at all very well to them. I just get way too excited. So it's a good one for me to come back to. And it definitely resonates with me because it just reminds me to make sure that I've got my foundations in place mm-hmm. before I start to look at anything too extravagant. <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. Well, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast today. It was really interesting learning about your work and just kind of the the UK grad school system. <laughs> if people would like to find out more information about you or your work, how could they get a hold of you for that? Uh, yep, can use my Twitter um, at lookmorefish okay. or there's my email callumpritchard at outlook.com. Awesome. I will put those in the show notes as well. If anyone would like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter and the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheries pod, or send us an email at feedback at the fisheries podcast.com. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. You can download past present and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or the fisheries podcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome fisheries podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Hindley. Thank you for listening to the episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, do the basics and do them well.